Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Zach Norris, and today I'm going to be talking with yet another person who I think has a valuable skill set that's useful to everyone out there. Each week, I interview one new person, and we chat about their successful habits and routines. I chat with people I have connected with in my life who I think have something valuable to offer to each and every one of you who are listening. And I recognize that everyone has a unique quality about them that makes them shine. And if we take the highlights of each of those that we know and we apply them to our own lives, we then begin to exponentially grow as individuals. We learn and adapt so that we can become the best version of who we want to be. So let's get started on this now. Like I said, my name is Zach, and today I've got Carl Steiner on here with me. Carl is the founder and webmaster of MindfullyInvesting.com, and he's located out of Washington State. He's been a successful small business owner, and he's got about 30 years of experience in the environmental consultant industry. And Carl's now starting his early retirement at the age of 52, and he's created a site to help others, much like Dollar Sign University. That's MindfullyInvesting.com for anybody who hears that. He has a great organization skills, and he's got great people skills. So I'm going to go ahead and let Carl introduce himself and uh, let him tell you about who he is. Uh, welcome, Carl. Really pumped to have you on here. How's it going today? It's uh, going great. Thanks for having me on, Zach. It's a great opportunity. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, what may be of interest to your listeners about me is that uh, I have been in the, a business owner uh, for about 15 of those 30 years that, that you mentioned. Um, so I've had uh, the experience of going from uh, uh, learning about science to learning about business and uh, how, how that, the economics of that works and how you run a business. And, uh, and more recently, um, I've uh, gotten into mindfully investing and creating that as part of sort of my retirement um, overall plan of, uh, of activities. It's just something to try to reach out to people and um, share some of my experience investing. I've been investing since about 2000 uh, in a major way, and I've seen a lot of up and downs in the, in the stock market and other markets over those years. And so I thought I had something to, to bring to the table that you don't read every day uh, on the Internet about how to invest wisely over the long term. Uh, and then also bringing some of my business experience into that and sort of how that's helped me uh, in, in the whole uh, endeavor of investing. Gotcha. So I guess for your retirement, your main goal is to, I guess, help others out and build skills for others, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the other big thing that we probably won't talk much about that um, I'm going to get into probably in about a year um, to give myself some time to settle into the new life of retirement. But uh, the other thing I want to get into is uh, doing some charity work for uh, water distribution projects um, in places like Africa and South America. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent also of a sort of a life goal and a way of life is to reach out to people and try to help them um, in myriad different ways. And I think that that uh, uh, flows back to the person who's giving in so many different ways that are very hard to quantify, but I think is a big part of a fulfilling life. 
Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things about the way that you give back is that you give back through the environment. I think that's a really new, unique quality. A lot of people give back to individuals, which is kind of the way that I do it. Um, but I, you've been involved with environmental science as an environmental consultant for a really long time. Um, what sort of things have you been involved in as far as that goes? Well, you know, it's, again, I think it's maybe interesting to look at it from for for your listeners who might be a little bit younger as, as sort of the, the arc of my career a little bit. So if you can bear with me, I'll give you maybe a little bit of history and give you a sense of how that happened, and then that'll give you a sense of what I worked on. But I, uh, I had a four-year degree in biology, and I got out of college, and I literally, like, looked in the newspaper and said, you know, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and uh, what I really wanted to do was travel to Africa, which I did later, but I needed a job and I needed money, and um, I applied for and interviewed for this uh, job in a small environmental consulting company. And so, you know, I started out right at the bottom. I think in my first year, I made $13,000 a year was my salary. And even when you correct for inflation, that was that was even a low salary at the time, uh, particularly for, you know, a four-year degree position. Yeah. Um, but I found really quickly that I, I liked the business uh, of solving environmental problems, dealing with clients that sometimes were fun and sometimes not so fun uh, to deal with because they have difficult problems and don't mind yelling at a consultant in order to get them get them done. And so I progressed uh, in that industry for many years and then um, I moved uh, out, out to Washington State. I used to live on the East Coast. And uh, at that time I got more involved in a specific area of the environment uh, that's about contaminated sediments. So it's basically contamination that's discharged, you know, pollutants, heavy metals, oils, things like that, to, to rivers and uh, bays, uh, and it, it settles to the bottom and gets trapped in the mud at the bottom of these, these waterways. And that's a, there was a big effort in the Northwest United States to start cleaning some of those contaminated sediments up. So I started working on very large projects, first as like a task manager, um, you know, I've worked on a big project in Commencement Bay, which is where Tacoma uh, is. And, um, and uh, you know, we're talking projects that uh, over a course of a few years might generate $100 million in revenue wow. uh, for, for our company. And, um, and I jumped around to a few different companies in that time, but I finally found an opportunity where I thought I could get a partnership uh, and be an owner of a, of a small growing company. And that, that, that happened, and I spent quite a bit of time uh, in Portland, Oregon. I didn't live there, but I spent a lot of time flying there <laughs> on a big Superfund project uh, in Portland called P Portland Harbor, uh, and it was a, another one of these sediment cleanups. So that was sort of about 10 years of the last part of my career was working on one of these huge projects with literally hundreds of stakeholders, so a lot of government people, uh, a lot of the, the polluters, the the city um, and county representatives and uh, pretty much any type of person you can imagine um, yeah. because that's, they all have a say, you know, a say or uh, an opinion about how some of these big cleanups should go. And then probably the part you're more interested in is sort of some of the business aspects of that, but we can, we can talk more about that if you want. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I think might be useful to any listeners to this is 
how you went about finding that smaller company to work for and kind of build uh, your career through that. Um, it's very easy to find these large companies to work for, but sometimes it's harder to find those little gems that you might be able to go a little bit farther with. Uh, although it might be a little bit different for people now, how did you do that back then? How did you find these people? Yeah, you know, well, I think one of my pieces of advice to younger people who are starting out in a career, I think there's a lot, um, far too much of this idea bandied about that you should uh, follow your passion, uh, figure out what, you, what you're good at and do that. I, I, I think for a lot of young people, including me, and the, you know, and the people I worked with when they were, you know, the same age, so I, I found over the years that we actually didn't know necessarily what drive our passion the most or what we might enjoy the most or even where our best skills are. I wouldn't have told you when I was 18 that I would turn out to be a great large project organizer. But as it turns out, that was one of my uh, most valuable skill sets in terms of you know salary and compensation. Um, so I would say rather than looking in terms of this is the, the dream job I want to get and I'm going to go find it and I'm going to get it is to keep your eye out for opportunities. Um, so my opportunity in that case was I was literally responding to an ad uh, for an interview uh, for the position in the paper. I knew nothing about that company. Um, but I think one of the things I've always used as a gauge and I've used then and I've used in many interviews since then is probably one of the most important things about a company, whether it's small or big, is do you like the people that you're talking with, mm -hmm. that you're interacting with before you've gotten the, the job? And if, if you like the people, you like their attitude, and you need to like something about the business as well, um, or the business makes sense to you as sort of a business model. But if all those things fall in place, that's probably, you know, I would suggest that people follow those opportunities. You might think, I never thought I would be working in X industry or Y industry, but yeah. you might find that that's the opportunity that's presented to you might be the best opportunity of your life. It's just hard to tell sometimes, and I think far too often people limit their scope because they have some preconceived idea about what they'll enjoy or, or what they're good at. Interesting. So I guess to summarize, your big tip as far as uh, finding a job is find somewhere where you like the people rather than necessarily the position. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the, you can't ignore the other part, but I think that's always a good gauge. Like you were asking, well, how, how would you identify one of these companies? Well, there's lots of ways to identify little companies that might have jobs that you want. You can go out and, you know, seek them out or look to see if they're seeking uh, people for positions, but I think one of the gold standards once you get there and you talk to people is it an environment that makes you comfortable, that, that makes you feel ambitious, feel like, you know, you could you could do some um, some some valuable things there. But because uh, if you don't if you don't click with the people, you know, I, I would say uh, that's a that's going to be tough, right? Because you might you might think it's the best technical area or the best business area that you're interested in. If you hate everybody around you, or you think you might, you know, be tense with everybody around you, that's going to be hard hard to enjoy. So, 
I wouldn't say necessarily that means you should look at doing anything. I think you still have to under, uh, enjoy, to some extent, the mechanic diet or whatever the job is. But but that that people part uh, makes a huge difference. Interesting. Gotcha. Well, I guess to kind of go back to things. Um, I, I'm sure that you never really thought you'd ever get into the world of business. You would be more um, doing just environmental stuff. Um, how did you get to be, I guess, in that transition uh, from just environmental projects to business? I know you said you uh, uh, got involved with that small business, but what was, uh, I guess, that point where you transitioned to a businessman? Yeah, I think... Um and, you know, it's different for every kind of business. And my experience was you learn a lot about business and, 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 and money and what makes uh, a business profitable, what makes it be able to grow. In, in my case, it came from first year managing projects. So you weren't, you weren't managing the company itself, but you were responsible for making sure that X amount of dollars came in on this project and that um, the project was done profitably. And so that was, uh, it's a, that's the one good thing about uh, uh, consulting of any type, whether you're talking about accounting consulting or engineering consulting, is I think you naturally, you have to understand the business side, even at the start, in order to have projects um, work. You have to understand that the hour that I spend on something is and the money that we get paid, that company gets paid for that hour of work is what drives, you know, the company profits. Uh, and if you can't stick to a, a project budget, then the company loses money. And if you have enough projects like that, the company goes out of business. So then uh, once I had established sort of that part, it became this question of, I wanted a, a stake in the business. I didn't want to just be an employee. And so I look for opportunities working with people I've worked with for many years. And um, a few of them had started the company. It was literally like a company of three people. Hmm. And so I approached them and said, you know, I think I understand how this business works really well. I think it'd be a great honor for you. And I'd be able to bring additional revenues to the table. And uh, um, fortunately for me, they believed me and they, they took a chance with me. And I think I proved them right. Um, but, uh, and, and, and then I would say that's where you really start to understand the business side when you're also responsible for cutting paychecks and things like that. And, you know, yeah. making sure that, you know, everything, the, the, the money's outlaid for all the things that you need to run. In our case, it's things like desks and phones and uh, computers and, and travel expenses and things like that. Um, and that's the, my other interesting observation about that is, I think companies like consulting, professional services can run into difficulty because they are owned by people who are um, trained as scientists or engineers or lawyers or uh, accountants. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily trained as business people. Um, the very few people, owners of the companies like mine that I've worked with actually have any sort of business degree or education or background. Mm. And I don't know if that's the reason why, but if you look across most um, engineering environmental consulting companies, their profit margins are very low. Mm. Uh, and we were unusual in that regard. 
but and I think part of that's due to the fact that you know a lot of these people aren't necessarily trained in business, so they might not be the best run businesses in a lot of cases that you could that you could find. Um, but you, I'll tell you for sure, you learn a lot um, in making that transition from being an employee to an owner. Yeah, I'm sure you had to adapt quite a bit. I bet that was a big change. Were you? Uh... Were you kind of frightened when you first asked to uh, be kind of a part owner and then they said yes? Were you shocked? Well, you know, part of the frightening part is, you know, you, it's just like buying stock, stock in a publicly owned company. So it started with me paying the existing owners, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get a share of the company. And there's a really appropriate reason why you do that. It's like you want people who are operating the company have skin in the game. Yeah. And so the idea is, um, just like the publicly owned stock, is I'm looking at it as an investment. It's sort of like how much um, dividend, essentially. We don't call it that in this business model in a private uh, limited liability company. But so it's basically the equivalent of a dividend on that stock you buy. And then what's the, what's the growth? Uh, and so the, how much is it likely that the price of the stock that I bought is going to go up? So it had to make sense to me, too. And so that's scary, right? You're, people often um, put second mortgage, mortgages on their houses or, you know, borrow money from their, uh, their wider families in order to uh, become partners in, in these types of um, mm-hmm. businesses. And so you're like, I don't want to lose my money is one way. I think the other way you're you were probably implying is that, yeah, am I going to be able to uh, bring the goods to the table and help grow this company in a way that the other partners think are valuable? And I, just to give you an idea, I started with like four partners, uh, including me, and we ended, when I retired last year, we had 42 partners. Oh, wow. So that gives you a sense of uh, how much the company has grown. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I think one of the nice things about that sort of investment, though, while it may be a little bit more money, you have some control over what goes on with your investment. When you put something in the market, all that you have to control is whatever the public thinks of the stock. So, I mean, for example, Facebook dropping recently just because of the uh, uh, data scandals and such. Um, and I, I'm sure it was... A little bit scary, like you're saying, and uh, I, I bet it was kind of nice to know that now you had a say in what goes on, and you could um, grow it and grow your investment and be an active part of that. I think that's really unique. Yeah, that's that's the the, the key thing about these is I think on paper um, uh, most people who look at investments and in different kind of assets classify. Uh, starting and running your own business is one of the highest risk investments. It's riskier than owning public stock. It's riskier uh, than certainly than things like bonds. It's riskier than real estate in most cases. And so, but the question is, where does the risk come from? And if you're an owner uh, rather than an employee, you can help control that risk. and I'll say, you know, it, it, uh, there's certainly a lot you can do to manage that risk by being an owner, being well, willing to put in the time and the energy and the, the smarts that it takes to solve problems. But I think in my experience, I found that there's just a certain amount of uncontrollable risk. Like, you know, we had a fairly good 
economic downturn in 2008 that didn't affect my industry very much, but it affected enough that uh, we all realized, hey, there's not much we can do about this. If our clients decide they're not going to spend money, then we can't, you know, get blood out of a turnip. Um, so, so yes, it certainly helps with that that sense that you can control the risk, but there's always risks that you just you can't control, and that's that's the part where you just got to swallow hard and keep keep charging ahead. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, during the time that you were working as kind of this environmental consultant, business owner, and such. What exactly did you do for fun? Were you always working, or did you have kind of a work-life balance sort of deal? Well, my wife would say I didn't have a good work-life balance. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my view is that sometimes it was good and sometimes it was not so good. Um, You know, like, like a lot of types of jobs, you don't necessarily have complete control over how much work is available and you never want to turn down work, right? So you say yes to everything. So that means sometimes, you know, three things, uh, three different clients call you up within a week and you've got all this work suddenly. And then there's other times when you're out knocking on doors because you don't have enough, enough work to do. Um, so, so that, that's, that's definitely part of, um, sort of managing the, the whole business is managing those, those ups and downs and then it affects your personal life. Like, you know, sometimes I, you know, uh, on paper, um, I had a salary that was on paper supposed to be for 40 hours. I would say, you know, when I was in those busy times, 70 hours a week was not unusual. Mm-hmm. And the um, not so busy times, I'm still doing 50 because you want to generate the work that, to, to alleviate the lull uh, in, in the work that you got then. So um, I would say when I was working more like the 50 a week, um, there was plenty of time on the weekends and in the evenings to enjoy my family and outdoor activities and things like that. But when it was the high numbers of hours per week, not so much. And um, it, uh, it does take a toll on your family after a while if that goes on for a long time. Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there. Um, but I'm sure it's nice now to know that you have kind of some financial security and you've got time to spend with your family, you know? Well, that was one of my goals in early retirement was that um, I kind of felt like, you know, I'd done that for 30 years and grown from, you know, literally entry-level position all the way up to owner of a, of a fairly large company. And... Um, I felt like I had done that, and I could I could have done that for another fifteen more years, but I didn't really feel like I was learning much that was new. I didn't really feel like I was growing as much as I had in the mid part of my career. Um, I pretty much determined what I was good at and what I wasn't so good at, um, which I think, by the way, is equally important for people to figure out. But um, uh, but you know, I, I felt like. Uh, I could do something different and continue that learning process and getting back to your point, um, spend more time with my family as cliche as a lot of people (laughs) retiring, uh, uh, you know, sound when they say that, um, it's definitely true. Gotcha. Uh, what do you think you're going to do now? I mean, now that you've got all this time, do you think you're going to get bored or do you think you're just going to enjoy your time and travel and do whatever? 
yeah, travel is definitely part of it. Um, I, I downhill ski and I cross country ski, so I like to do both of those in the winter. Um, I still have a 13 year old daughter, so she's got a few years before she's going to be uh, in college, and um, so I'm the, um, the, the the bus driver <laughs> for a lot of her activities until she can. So that actually still takes up a fair amount of my time. Um, and so, but when I look a little longer term, it's um, I, I'm very interested in continuing to, you know, uh, expand mindfully investing, follow my nose on that and see where it goes. Um, I could see it turning into something else um, uh, that looks pretty different, um, but um, it's one of those opportunity following procedures that I was describing before. I'm not too wound up about if it doesn't go where I expect, uh, I think it'll go someplace. And then the other big one is um, is uh, some of this charity work that uh, I'm uh, familiar with a few organizations that do that. So it's building like water projects in places where they don't really have a good uh, water supply and uh, just using some of my professional experience to actually help people uh, in that regard. And we are vacationing. We're, we're going to Hawaii uh, on Friday for my daughter's spring break. And then uh, in August, we're going to Australia for five weeks. Oh, wow. Um, That'll be fun. And then last last year, same August, and we'll probably keep doing this, we went to England and Iceland for four, and Scotland for four weeks. So while my daughter's still in school, I can't do the big trips, yeah. long trips, but my wife and I are kind of planning to maybe uh, live in France for a little while to see really? what that's like. Um, so there's no shortage of things to do. So if, if uh, I know a lot of your listeners are on the other end of the, the, the career path here, but I always say to people, I think, you know, unless you really lack imagination, you're not going to have trouble figuring out something uh, productive to do in retirement. Fair enough. I mean, that's definitely a great point. I'm sure you could keep yourself occupied doing just about anything. There's so much to do. And I think mindfully investing is a really cool thing. Um, And I'm definitely going to leave a a link to that in the description for everybody to look at, um, as well as a couple of the charities if you'd like. Um, What's kind of the next move for uh, mindfully investing? Well, um, you know, I'm... um have spent quite a bit of time um, in marketing the, the investing personal finance side, um, trying to develop some some connections there, you know, just some networking there. Um, and now I've, I've kind of um, actually want to spend a little bit more time on the, the mindful side. Um, so the whole idea behind this, the, the site is that I'm a, I'm a long-time meditator, um, so I'm into the idea of mindfulness. I think it really brings a lot to the table in terms of personal finances, but a lot of other aspects of your life. Um, we're, uh, like it or not, people are, humans are emotional beings, and so mindfulness really helps you, including in investing on sort of, you know, being aware and handling your emotions and so that they don't get in the way of, of you know, um, good decisions, whether it's for investing or other as- aspects of personal finance. So um, I was really trying with this site to try to create a bit of a nexus between sort of the personal finance folks, people who are into that, uh, particularly the investing side. There's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, dividend investing and investing sites out there. And try to uh, between that and the folks that are the more the mindful folks, uh, the meditators out there, who 
frankly, know a lot about mindfulness, but are pretty ignorant of um, of uh, a lot of uh, you know what we would call sort of um, common uh, commonly understood uh, uh, personal finance you mm-hmm. know good practices. So uh, I've been reaching out to some of the sites that uh, and posted some 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 articles and sites that are more on that aspect. So I'm, I'm hoping the idea is that comes together in some sort of uh, mixture or combination that, uh, you know, I kind of got some people coming from both sides um, of, of the picture. Uh, whether that's really happening yet or not is, uh, I'm not sure, because it's kind of hard to tell uh, exactly why people go to your site, even if you know, you know. Uh, where they where they were referred from, mm-hmm. but uh, but so, but that's the idea, and I, I and I don't have any big picture. Like I said, I'm sort of pursuing it as an opportunity to see where it goes. I don't have a big picture. If I want it to be like this huge website or something um, in the future, um, if it doesn't do that, that's fine with me. Yeah, and I mean, you've just got to help one person. And I think the cool thing about mindfully investing is that, like you were saying, that mindfulness portion and how humans are emotional. I mean, that, that is definitely the single biggest mistake people can make investing is investing on in an emotional time. Um, people will invest based on how they feel rather than the logical decision. And so I think you combat that really well. And I think that's something that any listener um, who's listening to this uh, should definitely, uh, I guess, take into account and definitely check out your site for is because it's just so important um, if you're investing or even making a purchase to not be emotional about something. And I think the, I guess, meditation or um, whatever works for anybody is something super important to uh, making those logical decisions. Yeah, and that's the thing I always say to people is, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a meditator. You don't even have to really even like the concept of mindfulness to get a lot out of the site and the ideas behind the site. Is that it's just it's just that very fact of, of being aware of your emotions or understanding that we have things that are talked a lot about on the internet right now, like cognitive biases and how those and how those feed your decisions in an emotional way, often and sometimes in an unemotional way. So just being aware of that, you don't really have to. Uh, start um, meditating an hour a day or, or whatever in order to, to get a benefit from a lot of these ideas. And, and what I found, it, it really, I, I focus a lot on investing, but it really applies to a lot of other aspects of personal finance. I mean, you ask yourself, well, why is it that like 60% of the United States don't have any sort of budget and couldn't tell you where their money, um, how much money came in mm-hmm. <laughs> each month and, and what they spent it on and where it went. Um, you know, I, I make the take the position in my website that the reason that most people don't do that is they're scared. They're scared of seeing what they'll see on paper when they write it all down. And, you know, how much extra debt, for example, they're adding to their credit card every month by operating uh, in the darkness. Yeah. So just understanding that that's what's motivating you. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not that you're denies. It's that maybe you're just scared of what you'll find when you start to take a close look at your finances. That's a big step in the right direction as sort of, of potentially correcting the problem. So, um, so it's just that, that basic idea. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and kind of as time runs out here, I want to ask you one kind of final question to wrap everything up. Um, 
what is, I guess, the single most important thing that you could say to anyone out there to benefit their life? I would say sort of two things. If I can put an and in there, I would say make yourself indispensable and uh, do the things for other folks. And I think if you if you do those things, um, you'd be amazed uh, what could happen in your life and what opportunities will present themselves to you. I love that. I love that. Um, well, I guess that's really all I've got for today. Um, is there anything you want to add before we wrap everything up here? again for uh, having me on and uh, it was uh, uh, interesting to see uh, how the interview process works and I really enjoyed it. Great. That's awesome. Uh, Well, I hope everybody was able to learn something from Carl's story. Uh, And if you enjoyed hearing Carl's story, please subscribe to hear more about opportunities like this. Thank you so much for listening. Definitely go check out Carl's site, mindfullyinvesting.com, and I'll leave a link in that description. Thank you, everyone. I do it by myself, do whatever sells. Principles as well, till I lose control and yell. Wear my leather jacket, the weather pin in the pallet. My boots are zipped and they're and I'm ready to do some fashion. And I look to my left.